Hello, sword people. Welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher, and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training, and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Dr. Tobias Capwell, museum curator, author, historical advisor, armoured combat practitioner, jouster, fellow of the Society of Antiquaries of London, and a freeman of the Worshipful Company of Armourers and Braziers, one of London's oldest livery companies. He's also known for his TV and film work, and his online presence, including, for example, the How Real Is It series of films on the Insider channel on YouTube. And I was actually watching one of those while waiting for Toby to come on the line. And they're great fun. So without further ado, Toby, welcome to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. It is my pleasure. It's nice to see you again. So my first question, how did you get into this? What? Tell us the genesis. Well, I, uh, this is for me a child's fascination that got kind of out of control really. Um, I mean, it's often the case. I've talked to a number of colleagues in the field and fellow uh, martial arts practitioners and so forth. And most people that I know, um, you know, have the same story that one way or another, this is something that they fell in love with as children. And, um, you know, I think it's like that for a lot of different callings, really. I mean, the few firefighters I know um, all said that they wanted to do that when they were kids, you know. There are those those lucky uh, lucky few of us who actually end up doing what they what they always wanted to do. Yeah, no one usually grows up wanting to be an accountant or, or dreams of working in an office as a child. <laughs> I bet there are those few weird, weird children out there. Uh, no, probably. And, a few. I mean, it's sort of um, fitting that I ended up working in museums because that's in a way, how it started. One of my earliest memories is being taken to the Metropolitan Museum of Art when I was four or five years old. Um, my family's from New York originally, or my mother's side anyway, and New York City was a place I spent a lot of time as a, as a kid. And uh, I went to see that collection for the first time in 1976 or 77, and that was long before their major uh, permanent gallery redisplay in the 1990s, which is, you know, still very much um, in force today. So it was a very different take on the collection, but I, I have certain visual memories from it and certain emotional memories too, um, which have always stuck with me. You know, they, they've always had this extraordinary um, cavalcade of armored knights in the center of this beautiful oh, yes. daylit gallery. And you walk into that room, and, and if you're sensitive to such things, it's, a, it's like a, you know, a spiritual thing. And, and I, I remember, on the one hand, being absolutely awestruck by these figures. I mean, that's, that's what Arms and Armor is designed to do. I mean, it's, it's fighting equipment, but it's also expressive art that's primarily about expressing power and splendor and the, the godlike identity of of warriors and uh but then i remember there was this other part of me that wanted to be one of them you know i didn't i don't i didn't want to be <laughs> stood down there on the floor with the other 
museum visitors. I wanted to be up there on the horses. And um, I guess there's, there's a part of me that's always wanted to, to, to learn by doing and to pursue interests by doing. Um, I've always loved reading and, and things, but the reading is meaningless to me if it isn't harnessed to some kind of action, um, some act, active yeah, process that, that all of your other work is kind of feeding into. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree. I mean, where to start? I went to the Met for the first time when I was about, I think I was seven. So maybe January 1980, I think it was, when my we were living in Argentina and we were going back to the UK and we sort of toured around bits of America on the way home, as it were. And my folks took me to the Met Museum and it is pretty much the only thing I remember from New York. And I was like seven. And oh my God, and every time I've been back to New York since, it's like, the one thing I have to do is go to the Met. And, uh, and among just... the memories that you have from that visit, do you remember the German jousting armor with the bullhorns and the ears and the huge red caparison? Um, I mean, that... I, no. Oh, really? That, that didn't... Uh, the thing I remember... No. I see, I'm, I'm not really an armor uh -huh. guy. I am a sword person. <laughs> so I remember... The, the, the thing I remember is they had this sword, yeah. which was... I think it was a... Like a Celtic bronze dagger... Uh -huh. Uh, which to a seven-year-old is sword-sized, right, right. right? And then it was hanging on the wall, and it was like my size, and obviously for me, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. so yeah, I fixated on the sword, and I fixated on a sword that was about the right size for me yes. as I was then. That, well, <laughs> and, then we're similar uh, in one respect, because while the, after initially, after I'd uh, admired these huge you know, mounted figures. The other thing that made a huge impression on me was the fact that they had several children's armors on display there. Um, yes. And, you know, I was like five years old and the arm, the children's armors are made for like 10, 11, 12 year olds. And so they were a bit bigger than me, but they weren't nearly as big as the guys on the horses. And I remember looking at those children's armors and thinking, I, I could, I could get in that, you know, and, <laughs> and then that opened the door of maybe you could actually become one of these creatures, you know? Yeah, and, and that's the thing. It, it, it has to be accessible. It has, it ha you look at it, and if, if it looks like something completely out of a different world, you have no way in. But if there's that, that hook that kind of, or that, that little doorway that gets you in and you can actually see yourself doing the thing, that's... Yeah, th there was, that's, that's there was a sense that... Happens. A child at some point obviously did this because the evidence is there right. in the little armors. So that was good. That was good right. enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So, 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 how did you get into like being an arms and armor curator? Because it's the kind of thing that that so many of my listeners will be going, "Oh my god, I want that job." So, how did, how did you do that? Well, I mean, that. Um, it took a long time, and there's a lot of timing and luck involved. Um, I, I remember that when I was 12, I wrote to the Met, and I informed them that I was available, and I, and <laughs> I was aware at that point that they were preparing their big redisplay. They'd taken the old display down, 
and they were in the process of years of work to redisplay the permanent galleries. And I wrote, and I wrote to them, and I, I, I informed them that I was aware of everything that they were doing and that they must need help, so, and I was available. Um, and I, I also cheekily reminded them that Stephen Granksay, their great magisterial early curator of the early 20th century, um, also joined the Met when he was 13 years old. So, you know, wow. I, I, I sort of put it to them that they had a, they had a history of hiring kids. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, here I was. And, um, and Don LaRocca, the curator there, wrote back to me and, and said they, they weren't in a position to supervise any other staff, but that it was nice to hear from me. He, was, he wrote me a very nice letter. And, and, and he, he also took the trouble to put a reading li list together um, of, you know, oh, wow. some pretty serious, you know, arms and armor literature that not many 12-year-olds probably know about. Um, and uh, uh, I, had al I also had taught myself how to make mail at this point, and I had sent him photographs of the mail that I was working on, and he sent me some mail literature, some of the works... Um, uh, you know, the early research um, on mail making and so forth. And, uh, and I read all of that. And that sort of got me going on a scholarly level, I suppose, in a way, just by following Don's advice. Um, and uh, I was also riding horses by this point. I'd started riding horses when I was about 11. It had taken me a few years to wear my mother down. Um, and, uh, you know, she was slowly coming to the conclusion that I had to be allowed to do these slightly risky things. Um, I was also sport fencing. I started sport fencing when I was nine or ten. Um, you know, sport fencing, as you well know, doesn't have a lot to do with medieval martial arts as we now understand them. However, when you're a kid, you just have to do whatever you can do. And it's not about doing what you want to do. It's about doing anything that will get you closer in some way or other yeah. to what you want to do. And riding horses and sport fencing was what I, and teaching myself how to make bits and pieces was, was what for a long time kept me going. Um, and in my undergraduate studies, I started to have more access to, um, you know, medieval studies courses as an undergraduate, um, can, you know, getting on the riding team, getting on the fencing team, um, just doing all the things that I was doing. And, and, and still, the, you know, have any realistic prospect as a curator was still very far away at this point. Um, I guess what I'm saying is that I developed a lot and, um, and became, a, you know, quite an advanced practitioner um, before my academic career really took off. You know, the, the fact is I wanted to be a knight a long time before I wanted to be a curator in a museum. Um, yeah, but, you know, I was always aware that, it, you know, if you want personal contact with the real stuff, real swords and armor, museum careers are what you need to look at. So it was always in the back of my mind. But, you know, when can you approach that? It wasn't actually really until I joined the Royal Armouries in the mid-90s uh, when, when they first opened in Leeds. Um, and, I, and again, I joined as a, you know, as a jouster, you know, 
not as a curator, but that was my entry. That was my way into museums was, was the practitioner aspect. <laughs> it was riding horses that got me my first museum job, not studying medieval history. Um, I would not have anticipated but, that. Uh, but once I, once I was in, you know, everybody gets their foot in the door however they can. Once I was in the museum and I had routine, you know, work in contact with the curators, you know, that side of me, you know, really started to come out. I, I could really start to see that hands-on study contact with real objects was what really was, was fulfilling spiritually, you know? Um, yeah. So I just started asking the curators that I now had everyday access to, um, you know, what kind of qualifications did they have? What were their stories? How did they, what, you know, what did they do through school and how did they get into museums? And it, it very quickly was revealed to me that most curators have um, an MA in art gallery and museum studies, or a lot of them do now, which is like, you know, a technical museum qualification. And a lot of them increasingly had PhDs in their relevant field or in some some area close to their relevant field. So, you know, I was, you know, I was talking to people and making a shopping list and, uh, and off I went. I went back to graduate school, two MAs and a PhD later. I'm frantically writing up my PhD in 2002 and I got the job as curator of arms and armor at Glasgow museums after having been working as an assistant, a curatorial assistant at the Royal Armouries, um, you know, before that. Wow, and Calvin Grove has a magnificent collection. Yeah, I mean, it's um, an amazing collection. It's, on the one hand, a local authority museum, but it's, mm -hmm. the collections are so good that in, in many respects, Glasgow deserves to be, you know, considered a kind of national museum by default. You know, they don't get, they, they don't yeah. get that funding, but they sure should. And they, they, and, and they, and they certainly, um, you know, they, they have international significance, not just in arms and armor in, in all sorts of things. The Glasgow collections are astounding and, and a, an amazing place to, to learn the ropes, you know, because, you right. know, you're not part of an arms and armor department. There aren't three other weapons curators. It's just you. And with this, with this oh, wow. great collection, that's still like, it's still, you know, of a modest size. It's very rich, very good, lots of real treasures, but it's not hundreds of thousands of objects, you know. Um, it's a comparatively, yeah. as these collections go, it's comparatively small and, and manageable. And, and there's also this, the R.L. Scott Library of of uh, fencing books, uh, works on artillery, firearms, you know, uh, horsemanship, you know, it's the great, probably the greatest fencing library in the UK as well. Um, and you had that at your fingertips. Um, yeah, it, it, it was extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary luck. Really. I, I, I think most of the people listening probably want to kill you right now. <laughs> well, it, it transpired that I was only there for three years. Um, I, I okay. thought I was going to be there for a lot longer. I could certainly see 25, 30, 50 years of work, you know, easily. Sure. Uh, research projects that, you know, wouldn't dry up for a very long time. 
Um, and, you know, while I was there, I did my absolute best to make the most of it and try to start to reconnect the library with the fencing community um, and, yeah. and make sure that, you know, we, we started to build up, you know, connections with the people who needed, needed to be using those books and needed to be aware of them. Um, but, uh, you know, as it transpired, I was only there for three years, so there was a, a limit to what I to what I achieved, but I think I did something there. Well, I saw your, um, well, I went to Kelvin Grove in about, I think 2003, it must have been, something like that. And I saw the Avant armor. Yep. And it was like, okay, I'm not an armor person, but now I actually understand armor people because they've got my armor in the museum right there. It's mine. It belongs to me, obviously. It is naturally my armor. I don't know what it's doing in the Kelvin Grove. That's yeah. my armor. Um, and yeah, and I was really struck by the way the exhibition of the arms and armor, it really put together, there were a few fencing manuals, pictures from fencing manuals, quotes from fencing manuals and weapons, and then similar sorts of weapons from lots of different things, including some of the animal kingdom weapons, you know, weapons sort of grown biologically on animals, which then we have perhaps copied or, you know, we we Mm. created for ourselves without ever seeing the animal. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was a stunningly good way to present. Well, the I, I when I when I was thinking about the redisplay of that collection, I looked at the whole museum. You know, Arms and Armor is just one part mm-hmm. of the museum collection, and the place and the significance of Arms and Armor within the institution sort of hinges on what else is there, and what uh, what other departments right. are there to complement it. Um, you know, so does the museum also have an amazing collection of medieval manuscripts? Well, then that has to be taken into account when you're thinking about what is the special appropriate way to display arms and armor in this particular museum. Um, and, you know, trying to take account of other strengths, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of integration of arms and armor in a, in a museum space. I don't, I don't want always for there to be a wonderful museum and then an armory stuck off by itself in one corner. I mean, yes, it's wonderful to go into places like that and see just wall to wall. stones. But I don't, I don't like arms and armor being segregated from culture as a whole. I don't like, I don't like seeing it pulled away into a dark corner in an art museum because arms and armor is in art museums for a reason. It's, you know, it is art and it's part of its original mm-hmm. artistic cultural environment. And you can't, you can't pull that apart. It's got, you know, you've got to look at everything. So at, at Glasgow, I, I looked at the, the strengths of this unique museum and I thought, what can I do here that I can't do anywhere else? What can Glasgow do that the Royal Armories okay. can't do? Uh, what can Glasgow do that the Met can't do? And, you know, I, I quickly realized this, the display you're referring to, that there's really no other major collection of arms and armor that exists in a museum that also has great natural history, you know, that also has, right. uh, okay. you know, fantastic, uh, you know, biological specimens and taxidermy and, and, and uh, you know, bone collections and things. Um, so I thought that's too good an opportunity. It might be a bit left field for some some people, 
But, you know, the fact is that in their natural state, humans feel vulnerable and humans don't have thick hides and hair and long teeth and claws. You know, they are not the top of the pecking order in their natural state. Um, You know, in your natural state, if you get into a fight with a bear, you will lose. Um, and, And it's that the fascinating thing is how we have found ways to appropriate the abilities and the, the, the defensive and offensive capabilities or some shadow of them uh, of other creatures and, you know, adapt ourselves to those environments. And we, we worship the bear on the one hand, right before we pull out his teeth and his claws and we take his hide and we, and we use them ourselves. You know, we become the bear, right? Um, and, right. uh, and that's, that's like, that stuff is like deep, deep in the human psyche and in the long, longer history of arms and armor. So I tried to do something along those lines. I think the success of it is debatable. If I had another go at it, I'd probably do it a bit differently now, you know, but when you're a young curator, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's a nice thing to be able to just take a few chances. And I've, I've not I've never been that afraid of making mistakes. I try to do my best and check my sources and things, but you got to you, you got to get out and do things. <laughs> Absolutely. And well, for me at least, it worked fabulously well. It it was like it was revelatory in uh, which is not something I often say about a museum exhibition, which normally tend to be a bit pedestrian yeah. yeah well i mean that, a lot of times curators are not they're not encouraged you know to go back to the drawing board you know you know mm. you're in a lot historically you're you're often put in very strict shoe boxes of expectation you mm-hmm. know, this is what we expect a display to look like um and and it's it's hard to really think in an original way and do original things often um, but there are plenty of people trying similar things. Sure. So, um, what took you from Glasgow? Well, as I said, I thought I was going to be there for a long time and I was quite happy up there doing my thing. I'd spent, you know, other years in London. I thought I'd done my time in London. I, I, I never would have imagined going back there actually. Um, and, mm-hmm. uh, the Wallace collection advertised, post of arms and armor in about 2005 Mm -hmm. um and in that first uh in that first attempt they asked for a curator who had uh, a a specialism in indian ottoman iranian otherwise asian arms and armor Mm -hmm. and i looked at i looked at that and I just said, "Oh, that's not me. I'm a I'm a European yeah, I'm a European so. specialist, and and that, that and anyway, I wasn't prepared to go back to London, so I dismissed it and didn't apply. Um, okay. And then it transpired that they just they they just didn't at that point find the right person. Um, and uh, then maybe nine or ten months later, they re-advertised for a European specialist. And um, 
I ignored it again because I just okay. I was just into what I was doing, and it it didn't yeah, it didn't sure. seem like a realistic prospect to me. And then I got a phone call um, from a uh, you know from quite an important private collector of arms and armor. And he he was also a very close friend of Claude Blair's. Uh, Claude Blair being, you know, one of the great um, 20th and early 21st century scholars of European arms and armor um, up to his death. He's really working right up to his death in 2010. And I had, I had gotten to know Claude a bit over the years. Um, and this collector said to me, he said, Toby, um, the Wallace Collection needs a curator of arms and armor. And Claude and I have discussed it, and we've decided that you're the man for the job. <laughs> okay. So, um, so we'll look forward, you know, to your your application. <laughs> so, so basically, someone took my hat off my head and threw it in the ring for me. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, and. The fact that, you know, this person and Claude had expressed confidence in me in something like this, in, in, some, in, a, in a job that on some level I probably didn't feel qualified for or ready for. I'd only been a curator for three years. I'd only been running my own right. collection and, you know, not one of the big heavy hitters like that. Um, and I, I guess I just needed that little bit of a confidence vote as well so i applied for it um and i got it and wow. you know that's that's what happened and off i went <laughs> you know I mean? and i'm still there i feel you know 15 years well, later well i mean your predecessor in the post david edge who's a lovely lovely man and incredibly knowledgeable i need to get him on the show absolutely yeah retired. well david david um, wasn't leaving the, i wasn't i wasn't succeeding no, david he, the thing was that david had uh, for many years at the wallace served in a in this odd post called you know old fashioned style post um uh, entitled armor uh, and the Wallace right. was the only other national museum to have an armor uh, apart from the Royal Collection. Uh, and the, you know, in the Queen's armor in the Royal Collection is someone who is both curator and conservator. You know, they, they have that right. academic intellectual remit, but they also are the hands-on mechanic and, you know, carer for the physical well-being of the collection, too. It's all in one post. And for many years, David was doing that at the Wallace. But then David got, mm. in, in 2005, David was promoted um, to head of conservation. So he could, no longer, right. he could no longer oversee any of the curatorial side. So it was only at that point, you know, in the whole history of the Wallace collection for 100 years, it was only at that point that they actually needed a curator of arms and armor. I'm still technically the first curator of arms and armor the Wallace Collection's ever had. Um, wow. And so then I, you know, I, I, I had the pleasure of working with David for many years up until his, his retirement last year. Yeah, and he was in the, the I guess, the equivalent of the post to, for, for since about 1975 yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So, I'd, so it doesn't, doesn't seem like you're going to be going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> well, who knows? 
knows? <laughs> uh, I, I've, I've, I've long since realized that it's not really up to me. Um, and, uh, right. you know, occasionally you, uh, you dip your paddle in the water, but you're not in charge of the river, as it were. <laughs> Very true. <clears throat> Very true. Um, okay, so you're, you're currently, are you in London at the moment? No, I live in, in Suffolk. Um, I live just across the river from Sutton Hoo in Woodbridge on the River Deben, and it's very nice. Dude, I thought you were in London right, right now, working at the Wallace. So I, we could have done this in person, because I'm in Ipswich. <laughs> <laughs> and we're doing it over the bloody That's internet. That's ridiculous. Well, you know, uh, let's just, let's just uh, blame COVID or something. Even, even yeah. That, that doesn't really work anymore. But, uh, no. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, um, I've, we've had sort of mutual acquaintances and stuff for a long time. We've met a couple of times. Um, and when you wrote your book, Armour of the English Knight, uh, I reviewed it on my blog and I told all of my readers, all like four and a half of them, um, that it would become sold out very quickly and get very expensive if they didn't go buy a copy right now. Okay. And I'm right. Because it's now, you can pretty much only get it secondhand and it's going for like three times what it was originally soulful yes yes you were so, basically right yeah so so um this is like a, a kind of a, a warm-up and a warning to current listeners that with other books coming out soon they need to jump on them um but when i read the book it it had this i'd never encountered that way of sort of evaluating armors before Right, and it struck me as really innovative, and um, I'm not going to like describe it because I'll probably get it wrong. Uh, much better if I get you to describe it, seeing as you're right there on the line. So, tell us about the book Armour of the English Knight and how you went about it, and what makes it different. Okay, yeah, I mean, initially that project began as my PhD, um, and then you know it just kept going. I did my PhD uh, between 1999 and 2004, and then I just basically kept working on it um, and trying to work towards something that I regarded as publishable. You know, I, I often I often okay. feel sorry for you know graduate students these days because you know if you want an academic career of any sort, there's a fantastic pressure to publish your PhD immediately after completion. Um, and as far as I can tell, uh, that's usually a mistake. Um, you know, the PhD has certain academic requirements and a function that are, you know, not always congruent with, you know, the makings of a good book. And, um, sure. you know, you, you need that work to mellow and you need it to sit for a while and you need to, get other experience and come back to it, look at it again, restructure it, you know, and, and so it, it took a very long time. But essentially, when I, when I started working at the Royal Armouries as a, as a jouster and then as a curatorial assistant, pondering his future, I, you know, I knew I had to be thinking about a PhD subject. And I was given some very good advice early on um, by my MA supervisors at the Institute for Medieval Studies at Leeds, that, 
you know, try to find a PhD subject that's a, you know, as original as it can be, a contribution to your subject, original research and so forth, but also something that you think you're going to be able to stick with, you know, because it's, (laughs) you know, it's going to take a while and you can't burn yourself out on this subject in a year because you'll never, you'll never get through it. You've, it's got to be a subject that really speaks to you where you want to submerge yourself in it and roll around in it and, uh, and live with it and keep going with it. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to be sure of something like that, but that's what you should be thinking about, um, you know, when pondering a PhD subject. And, um, as you know, after I'd been at the Royal Armouries for a few months, I'd been um, spending more time in the library. And as well as the world, you know, one of the world's greatest arms and armor uh, research libraries, um, the archive at the Royal Armories has an amazing image image archive of photographs Mm. that its staff have taken on research trips, you know, for decades. And they had this this filing cabinet full of eight by ten black and white images of funerary effigies you know in in a in a in a church when a knight dies uh they often set up a a funerary monument of some kind Uh, and and this is not just a glorified tombstone it's a kind of engine for intercessionary prayer so you know when people go into the church and they see your monument they see your image there carved in alabaster of this knight in his armor that moves them to say an intercessionary prayer for your soul, which also helps speed the soul through purgatory um, to the ah, to the yeah. ultimate afterlife. So the art of funerary effigies is really, you know, art that will literally save your soul. And uh, wow! Okay. And, and um, you know, medieval and Renaissance knights often spent enormous amounts of money on these fabulous monuments that record their appearance in life or their appearance in life as they would wish to be remembered um, with extraordinary detail. And I I later talked to another PhD candidate who told me about her research indicating that, that there was a connection between the effectiveness of a, a monument as an engine for intercessionary prayer and the realism of the depiction. And there's a sense that the more realistic and lifelike the effigy is, the more successful it is at giving the observer a sense of who this person was, then the more effective are their intercessionary prayers. And the, you know, the, the harder those prayers hit, you know, they don't just fly off <laughs> into yeah. the astral plane. They get to where they need to go, right? Um, And so realism is a major, major priority for these monuments. And realism is not something we often think of when we're thinking of late medieval art, certainly in England. Um, But the fact is that these effigies, because of their very specific function, are remarkably successful um, images of the real medieval world or, you know, a certain aspect of it. and I was looking through these effigies. And now, you know, for arms and armor people, there are like 10 effigies that are super famous, right? That are in all the books. 
uh, you know, you, yeah. you know, you've got, uh, you know, I don't know, you got the Black Prince in Canterbury, and and um, you know, the Richard Beecham at Warwick, you know, um, the really glamorous ones, um, the Fitzherberts at Norbury and Derbyshire, they're in all the books on the Wars of the Roses, you know, but there's only like ten that everybody knows. And then, the, you know, the, the people who know a little bit more will know all the ones that were published in Stothard. Um, you know, Stothard, the monumental effigies of Great Britain, um, published in the early 19th century. So now your awareness of medie medieval effigies in England goes up to 30 or whatever. But looking through these files at the Royal Armories, I realized that there were scores of fantastic English effigies of men in armor that at that stage in my career already I knew weren't in any of the books and had never been published and certainly had never been looked at by an arms and armor person. You know, I mean, right. you only see what you're already looking for. You all only can see what you know to look for. And, you know, if, if a mason looks at an effigy, he's going to see the carving technique. And, and if a costume person looks at an effigy, they're going to see the embroidery on the sleeves and the buttons and the whatever. And, you know, but armor is a huge part of these, these, the iconography of these things. And the armor people just hadn't really looked at it comprehensively. Claude Blair and A.V.B. Norman in the 20th century had driven around the country in the days before motorways and, um, and collected a lot of the photographs that I was looking at. But they were in a pre-digital world, and you know they didn't have the 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 instruments that powerful instruments that we have now at our disposal for the interpretation and digestion of vast amounts of of visual information. Um, and you know when I was contemplating this, digital cameras were a brand new technology, totally new. They'd right. only the first couple, the you know, first generation had only just come out. Um, and, but I was aware of that and I knew, Hey, you know, if I, I, I've now got a list I'm, uh, you know, of, of 150 effigies of men in armor all over England and Wales that have not been looked at and not been, you know, studied really by an arms and armor person. And I know there are more. And if I spend another couple months, I think this list is going to get a whole lot bigger. So why don't I do my PhD on that? Why don't I go around the country for two years, go to all these churches, look at all these effigies, photograph them with my whizzy new digital camera, dump it all into my whizzy new laptop, and, uh, and then see what, it, see what all this has to say about armor in England during the 15th century. Because, I mean, this is not just a 15th century story, but when you're, you're doing a PhD, you have to choose, you know, you know, to focus, you know, I had to, def I had to be specific or I'd never have gotten it done. The 15th century was always something that really spoke to me as a practitioner. It's, it's the century that had been starting to really form the basis of the jousting community that was starting to build up at this time. Mm -hmm. It was just where my heart was at that point. So, so, you know, that, that was a meaty enough thing to get accepted as a PhD. And, and, you know, I had the right experience by that point to look at it from the point of view of, of uh, doc, the visual evidence for, for the existence of armor that no longer survives uh, as metal. Mm. And, and, and off I went. 
So that was the PhD. And then another, uh, after the PhD, another 15 years of work has led to the, almost the publication. <laughs> uh, okay. So one thing that really stood out to me in reading the book is in the stone effigies, you can see like rendered in exquisite detail, details of repairs to the armor. Yeah. Um, which you can then f find sometimes the armor that that knight had, and that repair is actually there in the middle. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was a really important realization when when I noticed that. Um, and then once you know that's a thing, and uh, and you go out and look for it, you start to find many more instances of it. Um, I first noticed that on an effigy at Aston, uh, near Birmingham, um, home of Ozzy Osbourne, incidentally. Um, right. <laughs> and right behind Aston Villa football ground is a medieval church. And in that medieval church, they have several, um, several really great mid-15th century effigies. And on one of them, I noticed that all of the hinges on on the armor matched stylistically, uh, except for one on the greave, the lower leg plate, um, which was just a, a, a strip of metal with two rivets in it. It didn't have any decoration. It didn't have any shaping to it. It was just like plonked on there. And, you know, this is... Like an emergency repair. Yeah, yeah or... Or even something that might have been on the original armor, and the you know the the armor just ran out of hinges, and that 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 you know that happens, right? But it could easily have been a repair as sure. well, sir. Yeah, yeah. But the point is, that's not something that an effigy carver would have come up on his own and introduced inexplicably. No. That's something that had no. to have been present on the armor that he was copying, that he was working from as a reference. And not only that, there's an implication of instruction. You know, that, that the, the, the commissioner of this monument had told this artist, copy this armor and don't leave anything out. And don't fix anything. Yeah. Copy it as it is. Because the way it is, is a testament to who this person was yeah. and the life that they led. You know, if you're wearing a totally pristine, perfect, spanky armor, you've obviously never done anything in it. You know? I <laughs> yes. mean, the scars and... That's still true today. Scars and scratches and dents have, have honor yeah. to them. And they tell a story. Mm. And sure, there are some that you're not going to leave in the armor. You know, you know if, if the side of your... your, your, your visor gets caved in in a, in a joust you're going to fix that but mm. you know there is that physical evidence of an honorable life in arms and and it, it seems fairly clear that when it uh, in some occasions when it was present it was reproduced on the monuments and and that was crucial to my work because i had to demonstrate that there was a, a relationship between what you see on effigies and what existed in reality. Um, and, right. and that's a really hard thing, you know, to determine beyond yeah. reasonable doubt when you don't have the armor to compare it to. 
the, there's none of this English armor survives. Nothing. There's not one piece of armor from the 15th century that can be categorically proven to be English. So you've got the effigies, but you don't have the original gear. So how do you prove that the effigies are a faithful representation of the original gear as it once existed, but is now lost? And things like that, those repairs and technical idiosyncrasies was a fundamental part of everything that I'm doing on this. Okay. I seem to recall, though, there were a couple of examples in the book where you actually found the armor, um, for the European armor. No, there aren't. I mean, no? if, I, okay. if, I, if, I, if I gave, if I I gave that. you the, that impression, I apologize. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I hope that you might have gotten that impression after being seduced by the extraordinary similarities <laughs> that there are between effigies and surviving pieces of armor. Um, okay, I, that's not no. What happened was I read the, I read I read the book at, when it came yeah. out, so like four or five years ago, five six years yeah. ago, and I I didn't reread it in preparation for this interview. So that's where that idea yeah. came from. There, that's just me. If if um if I had already published book three of this study, which hasn't come out yet, um, okay. you will have seen that I'm I've also studied an important group of English effigies that depict Italian art rather than the domestic English fashion. And that is another fantastically important piece of the whole puzzle because, Mm -hmm. you know, comparatively speaking, a fair amount of Italian armor survives from the 15th century. And so in that case, you have direct um, material and representational sources to compare. Um, and, And those, that Italian group goes a long way to proving just how fastidious and how skilled uh, English carvers were in, in faithfully representing armor, real armor that would really work. So why do you think Italian armor has survived where English armor has not? Well, you know, why is a difficult question. Um, it, it's, funny, it's funny, I spent the first four months of my PhD asking myself the question, why? Um, prematurely, you know, um, because that's always what you start wondering. It's natural to do so. But um, I had a very serious dressing down from my PhD committee after the first four months when they wanted to see serious progress on the initial, you know, you know, skeleton of my work. And I'd just gotten, you know, bound up with weird questions. of Why is this like this? I don't and and I'd gotten nothing done, and they just said, "Look, if you don't if you don't pick your act up in the next four you know four months in the spring term, you you can't do this. You know you've got to get your act together." And they said, <laughs> and they said, "Stop asking the question why. You should be doing nothing at this point with the question why. You should be worried about what and where." And that's it, <laughs> yes. right? <laughs> yeah. So, well, where and maybe when. So, so, so uh, you know, I, I try to wait for the question why until, okay. you know, I've done a lot of other work and I have contemplated it. Uh, I think it's important to, to wonder about it, but it's a very difficult question to answer. I think, first of all, you have to take account of the extraordinary odds against any armor surviving from the 15th century at all. You know, from your, yeah, from your starting point, 
you know, the probability is terrible. Um, and that's demonstrated by the Italian armors, actually. Uh, there are like, I mean, if you just take com complete or near complete armors for a second, you know, ignore the, 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 the helmets and odds and ends lying around. If you look at the complete armors or near complete armors, like the Avant in Glasgow, you know, that's basically a group of 13, you know, more or less, depending mm -hmm. on quite how you define your group. Um, that's 13 armors made in Italy in the 15th century. You know, Italy was the biggest, um, the, the most prolific armor industry in the world at that time. They were cranking out hundreds of thousands of armors, right? You know, I've documented in my third English armor, in my third book in the English Knight series coming out next year, you know, I've got the documentation for these Italian operations. They, they undertake to produce three complete armors per day in some cases. Um, and, wow. and different masters, you know, in different workshops, they form contra contracts or condotta um, to work together to, to, to get even bigger operations going for big contracts and so forth. The industry was enormous. Hundreds of thousands mm. of armors produced in the, in the 15th century. And 13 survive, right? And furthermore, of those 13, something like 10 of them, off the top of my head, you know, boffins can correct me at will, it's something like 10. 10 of those 13 or something um, come from only two highly improbable preservation contexts to wit Kerberg castle in the italian tyrol and the sanctuary of madonna della grazie in cortatone near mantova you know a bunch of armors improbably got dumped ex voto in a sanctuary in italy and of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of private medieval armories that once existed only Kerberg survives, right? With its original medieval mm -hmm. armory. And so, yeah, 13 Italian armors survive, but that's not really very many in, in, in comparison to how many were made. And, and at least, and the preservation of those was completely flukish and, <laughs> and, and, and fantastically yeah. lucky. So if you take all of that into account, you know, there is a, almost a precisely zero chance of any English armor surviving because England was a smaller operation. You know, Eng you know London was a major center of um, armor manufacture in the 15th century. Um, you know, but they were, as far as we can tell, somewhat more modest than the Milanese operation. Um, and, and they weren't importing and exporting like the Italians were either. Engl the English operation was very localized. And England is isolated economically as well, you know? So things like good iron and steel are precious metals that are going to be more likely to get recycled uh, and reused or just used until there's nothing left of them than they might be in Germany when it's easier for, for a, a nobleman to set up grandpa's armor as a monument to the family's illustrious past or whatever. In England, a lot of times they just couldn't right. afford to do that, I think. 
Um, so the odds are, are even more stacked against the survival of English armor. Um, and, and, uh, you know, and, and undoubtedly there's, there's many other factors, but you can see where you see, you see the, the rabbit hole that the question why leads you down. <laughs> yeah, but I'm totally not sorry. This is exactly the kind of rabbit hole that this, this podcast exists for. And the thing is, I, I have in my, in the back of my head, I have, you know, some imaginary listener sitting in their car on their commute to whatever job they do listening to this and getting a bit of a sword fix and it's been a bit of a crappy week and they're like ah oh, he's got toby on all right fantastic yes i've got his book brilliant okay and i have so i'm trying to anticipate that person's question and go well hang on why and then just try and ask it so that so that that person can can like get have their curiosity at least scratched if not slated so Okay, now your next book, which I happily pre-ordered a little while ago and should be with me very soon, but it's not here yet. Um, it's not the return of the armor of the English knight. It is the armor of the English knight, fourteen fifty to fifteen hundred. Right. So I take I take it you're you're basically chopping it up into fifty year segments, and you've got a book for each fifty sort years. Of, so sort of. what changed? Yeah, what yeah. Changed? I mean, basically, the armor of the English knight is all one one book. Um, it's just yeah. completely impossible to publish it as one book, um, both in terms mm -hmm. of what is required in the production and the funding uh, and, and the design and so forth, but also just in terms of binding. I mean, when this project yeah. is done, uh, it, will, it, uh, it will be... Uh, it'll, it'll be over a thousand pages. And, you know, producing yeah. a book like that in one volume is just not very helpful. Impressive, maybe, but not very helpful. Um, <laughs> yeah, you need, you need to work out for six months just to be yeah, able to lift so, it and open the pages. <laughs> so um, I split it up, and I split it initially into two. And I just figured I got to get something out. You know, this has been going on too mm -hmm. long. I'll break it down. I'll do 1400 to 1450. That's doable. Get that one out and then follow it up with the rest as soon as I can. Um, I had originally intended that there would only be a second volume and that I would ha fit, fit whatever I, uh, whatever remained to be said into the second book. Um, that was profoundly naive. Um, and I actually progressed quite far down the process before I faced the facts that I was looking at three books here. Um, I just innocently did a word count of book two when I was getting close to design and the word count showed me, you know, clearly that I, that I was looking at two books, not one. Um, so the second book is armor of the English Knight, 1450 to 1500. It finishes the story of the domestic industry, the domestic side in England, uh, in the 15th century. What were the English doing that was different and special and aligned with their military uh, practices and tactics and traditions and so forth? That's the heart and soul of the PhD originally, that there is an English style, the existence of which has never really been recognized. Um, and then, but then there, an, if you are writing something called Armour of the English Knight and you're talking about the armor that was used in England during the 15th century, another big part of the subject is foreign armor. The whole question of foreign-made armor in England and 
its influence technically and artistically uh, and how does it relate to all the domestic stuff that we talked about in the previous two books? And, and for foreign armor, it's primarily Italian and Flemish. Uh, those are the two key industries that were really influencing England the most. Um, German armor has for a long time been very popular with English living history people and so forth, uh, doing the Wars yeah. of the Roses and what have you. Um, but I found almost no evidence for the presence of German armor in England. Um, uh, at the end of the, the third book, which is coming out next year, is entitled Armor of the English Knight, Continental Armor in England, 1435 to 1500. So the third book, okay. you know, broadens back out the, the timeline a mm. bit because it's at 1435 that you can, it, that's the earliest date where you can really recognize foreign armor stylistically in the visual sources that I'm using. Not to say that Italian helmets weren't present in England in 1400. It's just that you can't differentiate them because they look too much like the helmets that everybody else was making. And often, actually, I found evidence of imported helmets coming into England in the early 15th century and then being decorated in the English style by English craftsmen. Uh, you know, so good luck, yeah. right? <laughs> good luck, yeah, good you luck know, differentiating those. those. Um but yeah. but in 14, around 1435, you start seeing guys on, on monumental brasses who are wearing Avant armors, basically. And it's, you know, mm. it's suddenly, boom, that clear. And the 1430s is also the point when I started finding more documentary evidence for Italian and Flemish armor being imported uh, into England. You know, we've got the, we've got the ships coming into the ports and being inventoried, and, and they list what's coming in. Uh, so that, that, uh, that, that's an important part of the story too. Uh, so that really makes a third book on its own. The continental stuff is the, sure. is the third book on it, on its own. I haven't done the 14th century. I haven't done the 16th century and I'm not gonna. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> a, a, cu a, cu a couple of years after volume three comes out, uh -huh. I, I, I will, I will perhaps give you a little nudge and say, uh -huh. Tell me, what, what about the 14th century? Yeah. Because actually, you know, probably one of the most famous sort of armour, English armour sort of thing, Henry VIII, super famous for having armourers brought over yeah. and producing all kinds of armour and the 16th century English stuff with that heavy continental influence is like really, really well known. But personally, from my own research interests, I am much more interested in the 14th century stuff because mm -hmm. that's, that's, you know, Fiori delivery is, is one of my main fields of study and that's his period. Mm -hmm. So that, that's where I kind of, in my head at least, that's where I live. Yeah. So, and it's a fantastically so, interesting period. I mean, the, the 14th century is a really big subject though. I mean, if you look at the early 14th century and the late 14th century, it sometimes feels like there's 300 years of artistic and technical development crammed into one century yeah um so you know that that thinking about that as a project just makes my head spin 
<laughs> well, maybe we need to start you off on another PhD, <laughs> and then and then twenty years later we get we get three books on the subject. That that's worth waiting for. I'd if say. you get me a wealthy okay. benefactor in an early retirement, I'll think about it. <laughs> well, okay, people listening, you heard, some of you must be really rich. <laughs> just by laws of averages. <laughs> Toby needs a patron to produce a book on 14th century uh, armour. Okay. Well, we've done um, it now. It would have to be quite, yeah, it would have to be quite a lot of money to tempt you away from the Wallace though, I think. Well, you know, I don't know. That, Everybody's got their price. I'm not sure how high mine is. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the Wallace is one of my absolute favourite museums in the whole world. Yes, it's, yeah. You know, when I was getting married, um, 2006 stressful time as you can imagine whatever and there was like mother-in-law totally lovely but still mother-in-law a couple of days before the wedding and priest and banging on about some catholic stuff and you know the general kind of chaos right at one point i said i'm just gonna go out for a little bit and i just went out i went to the wallace i was about 20 minutes away went to the wallace walked in and just bathed in steel mm -hmm. for half an hour, restored myself to a sense of normality. <laughs> and then it was, it was my shortest ever trip to the Wallace mm -hmm. because, you know, I had to you know, get back to wedding preparations and what have you. But it absolutely <laughs> saved my life. Wow, that's amazing. Great story. Yeah, it's a, it's a fabulous place. Mm -hmm. I'm also, you know, I used to be a cabinet maker. So the, the furniture collection at the Wallace mm -hmm. has me... But, you know, I'd been to the Wallace perhaps three or four times before I even realized that it had a furniture collection because I was just mm -hmm. fixated on the arms and arms. Yeah, yeah, that's very common. But, uh, I get a lot. I mean, my experience of our, our visitors generally is that there are, there are two groups of visitors. There are the visitors who know the Wallace is a great art collection of old masters and French furniture mm -hmm. and miniatures and so forth. And they have no idea there's arms and armor there. And then there's the other kind yeah. of visitor who comes straight for the arms and armor and isn't aware of the rest of the art collection. And again, you know, my, my instinct is always try, try and get everybody to see the whole museum um, because the two areas, you know, are very closely linked. Yeah. And absolutely just, well, if anyone is in London, they, they need to go to the Wallace as soon as possible and just, you'll see what I mean when you get there. Yes, and... Anyway. I'm, I, I should add yeah. that just for the next couple of months, uh, until early 2022, I believe, mm -hmm. at least to the end of 21, um, I don't have the dates in front of me, um, we have an exhibition on about Franz Hals, the Dutch master. Um, mm -hmm. And um, part of that is a little display that I put together of one of our finest early 17th century rapiers which is on display for the first time ever for Arms and Armor at the Wallace in the Great Gallery. Um, oh, my God. And it's in a picture frame, like a work of art. Um, and, <laughs> well, it is. Um, and yeah, it is. But it's also in the place where the laugh, the, Franz Hals's masterpiece, The Laughing Cavalier, uh, is usually displayed because the, the painting is in the exhibition downstairs. So we thought having a sword take his place uh, was really fitting because he's wearing a very fine yeah. rapier in the portrait, which is something almost nobody ever recognizes. Because again, you only see what you're looking for, and most people don't know to look for swords in in paintings like that. Um, and it's partially hidden by his forearm. 
Um, so that's a that's a that's a nice kind of current role that edge weapons are playing at the museum. So come see that. Absolutely, and actually, I think the last time I saw you in person was at the Wallace, and Jessica Finley was visiting London, and she was there, and you, I just saw you open up one of the cases, pull out a fifteenth century poleaxe, and give it to her, mm-hmm. so she could swing it swing it around yeah. in the museum. Yeah. Okay. Now, now to 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 be clear, you you roped off a little section, so so like random tourists weren't going to get a poleaxe in their head. Yeah. But it's it's really not very often that you see that kind of behaviour in a museum of curators just opening cases and handing out objects to um, members of the public. Um. So, what is what is the story behind that? What what makes you so amenable to that kind of well, I mean, I, I guess, uh, I guess first of all, it's because you know of my own approach, being someone who has one foot in the world of you know uh, academia, uh, and the other foot firmly in the world of you know pra- of the practitioner and of hands-on martial arts. Um, you know, I have an awareness of both, and I have an awareness that the two areas have a lot to offer each other and are kind of actually mutually dependent whether they know it or not. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can't understand a sword without having it in your hand ultimately. Um, Oh, I so agree. And, and therefore by extension, you can't really understand the martial art that, um, that has has developed for that particular weapon without again the connection with the weapon is the weapon and its characteristics yeah. define the way it can best be used define the movement styles yeah. that are going to work best with that particular weapon or that weapon typology um so practitioners need hands-on real stuff uh and yes. and similarly you know people whose professional jobs are to care for these weapons and talk about them and write about them even if they're not practitioners themselves they need to have a a discourse with prote- practitioners because you know ultimately this is not about the objects ultimately this is about communion with the ancestors and, you know, we all ultimately, I think, are driven by a desire to feel connected with our pasts and with our ancestors and with generations that come before. And we want to know, have a kind of felt empathic connection with people who lived hundreds of years ago. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and, you know, being a practitioner, you know, helps you on that journey and it Practitioners have a role in evoking all of that for pe- for non-practitioners, um, mm. and uh, and so you know Jessica's not you know she's not a, you know, random member of the public. She's a, you know <laughs> no she said you know, she's an important you know you know teacher and a member of the of the HEMA community and and going out there and doing a lot of good work and you know they you know they approached me in the proper way and we had, you know, I can't just let anybody in the museum any old time. We need to look at schedules. We need to have the right amount of time. We need to have the right facility set up to do it. You know, they understood all that and we set it up properly and we did it and we talked and, you know, I learned something from her and Mm -hmm. she learned something from me. And, and then what I learned from her 
gets disseminated through my channels and she goes off and disseminates through her channels and it's all very mm -hmm. um, symbiotic, ideally. Yeah, um, and you're right. I mean, Je Jessica is not just a random member of the public. She's also the first person I interviewed for this podcast. Oh, so yeah. Episode oh. one is oh. with Jessica. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I was actually up in London. The reason I saw this is because I, was, I knew Jessica was coming to London, so I came up to... You know, mm -hmm. And then we we spent the rest of the afternoon going out with her and her family and what have you. Yeah. But the yeah. obvious place to meet was obviously at the the wallet. But also, um, to what you were saying about you have to pick up the sword to understand it. When I was researching Capoeira's rapier system um, from his book Grand Simulacra, mm -hmm. it was in like, two thousand late two thousand four early two thousand five. Uh, through a mutual friend, I contacted David Edge and I said I was going to be in London. And I'm researching the use of the rapier in this style. Would it be possible to actually handle one? And he was like, yeah, sure. Just go through the catalogue and give me a list of what you want. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. So I went there with a friend and he got out the swords I'd asked for. And I took some measurements and some photographs and what have you. And then I took this like early 17th century rapier, put it in my friend Alex's hand told him to kind of point it at me. And then I took a rapier and went to sort of the other end of the room and approaching Alex, holding this sword, pointed at me. My body automatically went into exactly the guard position that Capoeira shows with the weight on the back foot and leaning back and your head is back because you want your face as far away from that point as possible. And my sword arm was extended because you want the sword between you and the nasty pointy thing. And it was just like, oh my God, this is, yeah. I, it, was, mm -hmm. it, it basically gave me what became the kind of the, the core heart and soul of my rape interpretation. Mm -hmm. like, this, mm -hmm. this is why it is like this because that point is damn scary and you can't see it. Right. It's pointed at your face, it disappears. And you don't know how long their sword is. And the blades of real ones tend to be, they can be much longer than the typical yeah. uh, reproduction at that point. Right. Um, yeah. I think now, and these, and heavy. these days, the, the reproductions are much better. But for a long time, you know, the reproductions that were out there were not, you know, terribly reminiscent of the real thing. And they're heavy, big, mm. thick, you know, pieces of steel. I mean, for me, uh, you know, I never forget those times when I pick up a, a sword or a piece of armor that I think I know well from the books, right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and you pick this thing up and you go, that is not anything like what I expected. You know, that yeah. is a whole lot different. And suddenly yeah. your whole orientation and your understanding of the subject changes a little bit. Um and that that can only happen with that that physical contact um and uh you know it's then you're on the right track um but uh, i mean i think you know the last 10 years or so there's been a huge improvement in the resemblance of modern made weapons and armor uh to the real thing and there's a, sure. a lot a much greater sense out there now of what swords should feel like and what armor how armor should behave you know and i think a large part of that is museums being willing to let sword makers come and handle i mean the outstanding example of that would be the oakshot institute which mm -hmm. literally exists to put swords into people's hands yeah 
Um, but also, um, like Arms and Armour, it was run by the same people as the Oakshaw mm-hmm. Institute. They went round Europe in the late 90s or early 2000s and took latex castings of sorts so that they could get the hilts mm-hmm. exactly right. Mm-hmm. Right, which is, a, again, I can, I can think of a time when your average museum would not allow latex castings to be made of their pieces yeah. by people who are intending to reproduce them. Yeah. And that was, I mean, um, that was an early stage in the process. I mean, if you look at where, so, if you look at where we are now, we've arrived somewhere where there are legions of good swordsmiths who just know, Yeah, they just know what a good su- sword is supposed to be. Um, yeah. You know, if you say to one of them, I want a 1250s knightly sword, they just know what that is now. And that yeah. actually is a much clo- much more closely aligned with real practice in the 14th century or whatever. You know, that the craftsman sure. the craftsman just has a a gut sense of how these things are supposed to be made. We I think we've we've started to get beyond slavishly copying an extant original and we're now moving into the realm of armors just know what the helmets have got to be, you know, and they, they know, <laughs> yeah. and, and they know how to work in this style. They know what the, the Augsburg style is or the Milanese style. And they're not, you know, there's less of us of a, of a slavish sense of it's got to be Wallace collection, a 75. And now right. it's just make me a nice Venetian salad or whatever. I like, and I like that. I like, I like that, yeah. that now you've got all these craftsmen who just, you don't have to have those conversations. You don't have to, you don't have to try and explain things to people and worry about hurting their feelings anymore. They just know what to make more and more. Yep. Um, now just circling back a little bit, I seem to recall quite a while ago, I for some reason I was watching TV, which I don't actually do that often. And I was like, that's Toby. And it was you sat on a horse in full armour at the reburial ceremony for Richard III. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, that not, not very many um, American arms and armour curators can say that they have actually been part of the official ceremonies for the burial of an English king. No. No, that's a pretty unusual thing to be able to put on your CV. So I do have to ask, yeah. how did that come about? Well, I mean, you know, yeah, that was one of the stranger days, certainly for me. Um, extraordinary day. Um, it actually, I think, kind of grew out of my PhD studies in a weird way. Um, because... Uh, uh, way back in about 2002-ish, I think, 2001, mm-hmm. 2002, I was happily ensconced in my you know, PhD research on effigies and things. And I got my first call um, at around that time from Philippa Langley, um, uh, the, the lady who ultimately led the effort to organize and... Um, uh, and execute a uh, archaeological exploration of that area. Um, 
she for years had been running a, a project called Looking for Richard. And she was interested in the possibility that there might still be archaeological remains of the Greyfriars Church where Richard III was buried, and perhaps even some fragmentary evidence of, of his burial and his, his funerary monument. Um, and, you know, she, she was working with a, a historian named John Ashdown Hill, and um, they had posited this... Pos they, 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 had, uh, they were... Um, what's the right word? They were predicting the possibility that they might find a fragment of the tomb itself. Mm -hmm. And if they found a fragment of the tomb, how would they recognize it? What should they be looking for if they find uh. broken up bits of alabaster or a bit of a, of a, of a brass or something like that? So she contacted me because I'd given, a, I'd given talks to the Richard III Society and she knew that I was working on, on monuments and specifically on monuments of men in armor. Uh, so she contacted me about that. What, what was my best guess um, on what Richard III's monument would have looked like? And, you know, if they find a bit of a foot, how are they going to know it's his foot and not somebody else's <laughs> foot, you know? Right. Um, and they, so. had this, they had this working idea that he would be an alabaster monument effigy of a man in armor, kind of like the one at Wingfield that we have here in Suffolk, um, of, of the, John de, de la Pole, the Duke of Suffolk, who was Richard III's heir, actually. He was Richard III's brother-in-law. Um, and they had this idea of a big alabaster a monument of a guy in armor. And I pointed out that effigy, effigies of kings are never in armor. Um, because the royal, the, the royal vestments, um, the, the formal clothes, uh, that, that are associated with the king, uh, are more important and more representative of identity than armor is. And armor is only found on right. the lower nobility, nobility and knights and things, but you would not expect it on, uh, to be found on a monument to Richard III, even though he find, you know, famously went down in flames at Bosworth. And we think of him always as a warrior king and so forth. But that's not how he would be represented on the monument. And I had a conversation with Philippa about that, and it was very nice. And, uh, and off she went, and that was the end of it for a while. And then I had another phone call from her um, in 20... Uh, yeah, early 2012. And, um, and she said, uh, you know, we've got all the money together. We've got you know, a research crew, we've got survey crew, we've got the University of Leicester on board, archaeologists, everything. We're actually going to dig on the site. And, you know, would you like to come around and be there when we break ground and so forth? There's going to be a lot of media attention. And actually, if you were there, you could help me kind of deflect some of that because it's going to be busy and blah, blah, blah. And I said, all right, out of curiosity, I went along. I didn't think they'd find anything. I really didn't. I mean, I, I, as far as I knew, you know, the, the prevailing thinking was that the, the area had been destroyed in the 17th century and in the whole area excavated and thrown out, thrown, bones thrown in rivers and so forth. And uh, so I, I didn't think they'd find anything, but I went along to see what Filippo was up to and... Um, 
And I went and I talked to a few reporters and, and watched and nothing much was going on. And I got bored and I left. And I went home. Uh, because, <laughs> Fair enough. Because I, you know, I had other I had PhD stuff to do, and I, I just didn't think anything was going to happen. And she called me up again later the, that day. She said, oh, you, 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 you didn't see you, blah, blah, blah. You know, we found him. Ah. And I said, found who? And she said, we found Richard III himself. He's right there where we started digging. Um, My God, that's lucky. And I, it's again, very improbable. And, and yeah. so much so that I found a hard time, I, I had a hard time swallowing it. And I started looking in newspapers and things, trying to find other medieval excavations that had occurred recently. And maybe they'd found uh, a bishop, a medieval bishop in Yorkshire with scoliosis. <laughs> and then somebody was playing a big joke on us. It was, after all, 2012 was the anniversary of the Piltdown Man hoax. Um, right. And I thought there's just fu something funny going on here. Um, but there wasn't. It really is him. And after all the study and everything, I, you know, I was peripherally involved with contributing to the, you know, the research and interpretation of the skeleton. And I presented some findings at the first Le University of Leicester conference. And, you know, I wasn't part of the core research team or anything, but I was sort of peripherally involved as, you know, another person who was, mm -hmm. you know, consulting. And um, uh, when all the research was done, it came time to start organizing the, the reburial of the remains. Um, and Philippa called me. And, you know, anytime I get a call from Philippa now, I'm like, oh, boy, what's going what's gonna to happen now? <laughs> um, and and she, she, she uh, expressed this, um, this desire that he should have some kind of a, of a guard, a mounted guard in the reburial. You know, if it Seems was, you know, if it was a modern member of the royal family, the, the household cavalry would be out in force. Um, and, you know, so what is what is the appropriate um, uh, version of that for Richard III? And, and, you know, she thought that he should have some knights of his own retinue uh, there. So that's that's what we did. Um, Dominic Sewell of historic equitation and I uh, did that. And we had, a, we had talked about having lots more, you know, why don't we have 12 knights on horseback or whatever? Mm. But then we thought, yeah, this, this is going to be over. That's, that's blowing it too hard. You know, we mustn't, we mustn't, oh, you know, we mustn't, you know, uh, upstage the remains yeah. themselves and the solemnity of a modern, you know, occasion. And we, we have to strike the balance very carefully to retain the respect that it deserves and, and not turn it into, you know, you know, a, uh, a living history event or something. So we, right, we sure. pulled it right back to just me and Dom and we rode with the mounted police and, uh, you know, and, and, and it went very well. It was a tense day. I mean, we rode in armor all the way from Bosworth battlefield, um, and uh, we, 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 we got in the, the lorry at one point and drove a little bit of the way, but we only had one change of horses, so we had to take that into account. Um, but it was still many, ar many hours on horseback in armor in the sun. Um, and there were threats of possible, um, you know, uh, attack of the procession by anarchists and loonies. 
And, you know, and it's 80,000 people crammed into the center of Leicester, mostly without security barriers or anything. Um, Once we got into Leicester, it was what the American military would call a hazard-rich environment. Um, (laughs) um, So, But, and, you know, we, we were just concentrating on making sure it went without without trouble and and it, it went very smoothly in the end well it's it's quite a thing you know, to be a knight on horseback at the burial of an actual king that's yeah that's, yeah that, yeah that's serious living history cred right there <laughs> <laughs> yeah brilliant uh, okay um now i i have a couple of questions that i tend to ask my um my guests and one of them is if someone gave you a million quid or suitable large sum of money to improve public knowledge around arms and armor, how would you spend it? Uh, well, I don't, I, I, I've never been in close to that kind of money personally before. I, it's, um, it's hard to know. I well, mean, enjoy it. I mean, there's the, there's the research on the one hand. I mean, your, your first mm-hmm. instinct is to spend it on research projects. Um, I, I have learned, a huge amount from building the armors that I've built and, uh, you know, starting a research project, building a new armor with the goal of finding out how does that style work and why is it designed like that rather than this one? Why is an Italian armor different make- than a German one? Or, hmm? Hang on. Do you make your own armor? Well, I, no, I don't make the the plates. I work with different right. plate armors all over the world for years. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do okay. a lot of the other work. I make the mail. I work with the textile and the leather. You know, when you're uh, wow, okay. when you're a user of full plate armor, there are a number of you know hands-on you skills that you need yeah. to have. You know, um, yeah. to to do it well. And um, I mean, with the plate plate making, you know, I just my knowledge of it advanced so much farther than my practical ability i got to the point when i'd i'd never i feel like i'd never really be able to make it as well as i'd want to make it and you have to decide what you're going to do with your time and there are there are guys who are set up to do that with such extraordinary virtuoso skill now it seemed a better use of my time again someone who has to prioritize the the use of the academic resources that i have as well what you know Mm -hmm. Why should I be hitting metal with a hammer when I'm one of the few people who can get into libraries and archives and get that stuff out there? Sure. You know, when I'm never going to be as good as hitting the metal as lots of other people anyway. So I, I just had yeah. to be a bit, you know, tactical about what I, what aspects of it I decided to do. But I've worked with a lot of different armors and, you know, it's my research, my design work, you know, the, the armor user should have a lot of input into, um, how these things get made and how and how they work and um, doing the research into how it should be worn. You know, you might have the plates of an Italian harness of 1450, but those core plates can be worn in like five different ways, which, right. you know, which like emphasize different, you know, practical attributes of mobility over protection. Then there are the aesthetic considerations that an Englishman likes to wear his armor differently than an Italian. And how much weight are you willing to carry versus how much mobility do you require? Are you fighting on foot or on horseback? All that stuff. Um, so I've learned a lot of, uh, through practical research projects like that. I've learned a lot through, 
you know, my more traditional research. So if I had a million quid, my first thought is, you know, okay, we need some big research projects here. We need some big questions that can only really be satisfactorily answered with lots of money. Um, but then, um, there's no point in doing a research project if you don't have, you know, really effective, viable um, plans for dissemination of that research and the long right. and the longer term value of that research. You know, I, I I never can understand how how anybody could hoard knowledge, you know, who could do research and then find some weird, twisted fascination in keeping it to themselves. You know, there are, there are, yeah. those, there are those people, I think. There are, I know um, them. I know many um, people like but, that. But, you know, when I, when I find something out that I think matters in some way, you know, I got to get it out, you know, and, right. you know, and I've been trying to get the English night stuff out for 15 years and it's driving me, you know, crazy that it's not out faster but ultimately, <laughs> but you know, but ultimately, things you know, they 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 get their own rhythm and their own time frame, and it's not up to you anymore. But but I if I would I would spend you know you know certainly twenty five or thirty percent of that money on you know dissemination uh, of whatever research you know we were doing. Um, I, I guess that doesn't tell you very much about what I would actually do. Um, I guess it would be harnessed too to my to my own ambitions as a practitioner, you know that I've okay. as a jouster and mounted combat person. Um, I've done most of what I set out to do. Um, you know, I've I've jousted in in heavy jousting armor of the early 16th century. We've done solid lances with steel spearheads. Oh God! Um, How did that go? I, um, I've done jousting without a tilt. I've done earlier stuff of different periods. Um, the one, the one thing I mean in harnessing the practical research and the academic and needing lots of money, the one undiscovered country for me is um, is I think really the. Um, the garniture systems of the 16th century and, and you know, that where you have an armor or armor set of armors that comes with all these variety of different kinds of exchange pieces. So the armor can be, can be reconfigured in all these different ways for every type of tournament combat, every type of battlefield deployment. You've got special parade elements sometimes, you know, um, yeah. And the pinnacle of the kind of garniture technology and its relevance to, in, in practical terms, to what was being done in tournaments really comes in the 1540s and, uh, and is led by armorers in Augsburg, uh, working for the Habsburgs primarily. And um, I would really want to go there. Um, you know, I want, I want to really explore as a practitioner those garnitures and how do they really work? You know, what is that one okay. weird gauntlet with the bifurcated hand for? And why is there this other gauntlet that's that got three plate fingers but one male finger? And what's, what's that weird exchange visor for? Okay, we think it's for foot combat, but which weapon? And 
let's recreate all the fighting styles for a Renaissance courtly spectacle <laughs> with, yes. the real, with the real weapons and the yes. real armors. And I want to know how long it takes to convert the armor for foot combat in the Champ Close for foot combat at the barriers. You got to take the lower half off and you've got to take the tonlet off. You've got to set the barrier up. What are we talking about? 15 minutes, half an hour, you know, and, and what, what do those different combats do for the, for the viewers? And, you know, there's all kinds of other academic and wider historical questions that grow out of the practicalities of using the equipment. So, um, so if I said, I want to use 25%, that's 250,000 pounds, um, for dissemination that gives us 750,000 quid, uh, to build some 1540s garnitures, uh, get the weapons together. Uh, you know, we'll probably need a few of these garnitures, right? Cause you got to have people to play with. Um, and, uh, you know, setting up the field, travel horses, you know, seven hundred and fifty grand's gonna go pretty quick. <laughs> That's a brilliant answer. If I had the money, I'd if I had the money, I would certainly give it to you, Toby. <laughs> I would certainly give it to you. <laughs> um, brilliant. Okay, now obviously you've done an awful lot and you've been madly obsessed with arms and armor since you were little and you have spent your entire life doing arms and armor and as you said before, you've actually like been there in armor on horseback at the burial of an English king, which is way cool. But what is the best idea that you haven't acted on? Uh, I don't, I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I generally act on the ideas that I have. Um, I, I do have a ah. folder. I, I do have a folder on my hard drive somewhere of ideas that never went anywhere. Um, and publications that never happened. But it's, it's not a very big file, really. I mean, when I have a big idea, I got to get it. I got to get it out there. Um, and I, you know, I don't have, I, I mean, and, and it's what projects come along. I mean, sometimes it's not about my ideas. Sometimes it's about what the Wallace Collection tells me I need to do. Or, you know, I get a- invited to do an interesting project for, you know, as part of somebody else's, you know, publication or, or whatever. So, um, uh, I... I I'd like to get it's, a kayak. Okay. I haven't gotten a kayak yet, but I'd really like a kayak. That's an idea I okay. haven't acted on. All right, you want a kayak? Fine. Yeah. Okay, let's go to Alton Water and rent kayaks, and we can right on. We can do that. Right we on. We can do that. And you know, quite a lot of my guests, um, because you know, I tend to interview the sort of people who tend to have done something, and so it's a very common answer to that question: is well, actually, if it's a good idea, I tended to act yeah. on it, and if it's yeah. It, yeah, so so you're you're in good company saying, well, I'm not really sure I've got anything. That's fine, but we'll go we'll go with kayaking. But kayak, let us, yes. Let, let us let us not kayak in armor. That would be foolish. Yeah, that's. I don't think that was done very much. So we wouldn't learn anything except uh, uh, why not? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, thank you for joining me today, Toby. It's been absolutely delightful talking to you. It's been my pleasure, Guy. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Toby, or Dr. Tobias Capwell, as he's properly known. You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast, 
While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks also to Andrew Lawrence King for providing the harp music from John Dowland's Battle Galliard, originally for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook, but now it's been co-opted for use in the podcast. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. Lynette Nussbacher, who is a strategy consultant, and her work has included being a logistics officer in the Canadian Armed Forces, a writer of books such as Bannockburn 1314, a lecturer at Reading University, the senior intelligence advisor to the UK government cabinet office, a TV presenter in various military history shows, and on and on and on it goes. So, Dr. Lynette Nussbacher... It's a fascinating conversation and you certainly don't want to miss it. So subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show or even leave a review if you have a minute. And of course, if you've particularly enjoyed this episode and you can think of someone who you think might enjoy it also, please do send them a recommendation. It makes all the difference in the world if you tell the people you think will like it to go listen to it. Thanks for listening and I will see you next week. (laughs) 